So would you now turn with me uh, to our passage this morning uh, in Isaiah chapter 42. The text will be printed, uh, it's in your bulletin, it also will be projected on the screen uh, behind me. But before we get to the text, I think congratulations uh, should be in order. Uh, you all survived, we survived 2020, and so that is something you can put on your resume from now on, 2020 survivor. Um, it was a different year in a lot of ways for, uh, for all of us. Um, one of the ways that it was particularly uh, different for me is that I didn't preach as much as I uh, normally do in a typical year. Usually I'll, I'll preach six to eight, uh, maybe ten times a year, but because of the chaos of the pandemic and uh, building project and other responsibilities, I only preached a handful of times. And it seems like uh, the last time that I preached was this exact same Sunday last year, the first Sunday of the year. Life looked a lot different back then. Uh, this room looked a lot different back then. We were filled with optimism. We thought we knew what was ahead in 2020, but not this year. So what, what are your expectations for 2021? You might have asked that this week. For some of us, we look and we think uh, turning the calendar is just a sign that this thing has gone on way too long. There's not a lot of hope and optimism. Uh, we don't think life will be normal for us for a while. And for others, a new year brings renewed hope that perhaps we will be returning to more normal life. And I've caught myself saying it over the past few weeks, you know, next year, this year, 2021, when things get back to normal. My sense is that we've placed so much expectation, so much pressure, so much hope on 2021. We're expecting it to give us back everything that 2020 has taken from us and that it's bound to disappoint us. 2021 can't hold the weight of our outsized expectations. My wife and I had, some, had a chance to reflect on the year and plan, and we kept coming back to this question, which version of 2021 should we be planning for? 2020 part two or a return toward normalcy? What's true in every year, if we're honest, seems much more true this year. That as we experience the world, as we understand the world, uh, we are a people facing an uncertain future. We don't know how life is going to play out this year. Uh, that's where the people in our text this morning were as well. They were a people facing an uncertain future, facing the threat of an exile. A conquering army was on its way and uh, they were unsure of the stability and, and the viability of life as they knew it. And they were tempted just as we are. That in the face of uncertainty when life gets scary, that we are tempted to turn to the idols and the little gods of the world around us. So I want us to think about what does God have to say to people who face an uncertain future. In Isaiah 42, what God gives to his people is a promise of his love and commitment to them. He gives them the promise of a servant who is to come. And so let's read Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 9. Hear God's word to us today. 
Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. I give my glory to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to consider your word to us, we are aware of our own inability, of our own limitations, And Lord, we are aware of our sin. We are aware that our sins are more than we can imagine. And Lord, even the one who preaches um, is convinced of uh, the numerous sins that he has. And so Lord, we pray that by your mercy that you would come, that you would Uh, By your spirit, that you would open our eyes, that you would unstop our ears, that we might hear the glory of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Just before the passage that we read in Isaiah 42, and in chapter 41, God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, he confronts the people of Israel. He confronts them on the folly and the foolishness that they have in following the little gods and the idols of the world. And he says, look at the gods. Can these gods save you? Can they deliver on what they promised to you? We've seen that as well. Perhaps more than ever, 2020 has allowed us to see in vivid detail that the world around us doesn't offer salvation. We cannot find salvation in the world around us. The gods of prosperity, the gods of health and success cannot save your soul. They they can't protect you in a world full of pandemics. What we have seen is that a virus that is the hundredth of a size, a hundredth of a micron, has upended our world. A particle that is 900 times smaller than the width of a human hair, has reminded us that salvation cannot be found in the world around us. Twice in chapter 41, Isaiah says somewhat mockingly to the people of Israel, he says, behold your idols, look at them, can they save you? And that's the same word, behold, is the same word that he begins our passage this morning. Not behold the idols, not behold your folly and futility, but behold my servant. So that is what we will aim to do this morning, to behold the servant of the Lord. But before we get into it, we need to talk about who this servant is. Who is the servant 
mentioned in verse 1. This is the first of the four servant songs that are in the book of Isaiah. Jason preached on one of them in Isaiah 53 during, uh, during the month of December. And while there's some interesting debate in the book of Isaiah over the identity of the servant, in this passage, it's clear. The servant of Isaiah 42 is Jesus Christ. Matthew makes that very clear for us in his gospel where he quotes this passage directly. In Matthew 12, Jesus had just healed the man with a withered hand. Uh, Crowds were following him. He does another series of miracles, and then Jesus turns to the crowd, and he says, now don't tell anybody. Don't, Don't spread the word about what I am doing. And then Matthew says, directly after that, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And then he quotes the first four verses of Isaiah 42. Of the nearly hundred times that Matthew quotes the Old Testament in his gospel, this is the longest quotation that he has. It's almost as if Matthew is trying to tell us, if you want to know what Jesus is like, if you want to know Jesus, look to Isaiah 42. You'll find him there. We can't understand this passage unless we understand that it finds its fulfillment in Jesus. There are aspects of our Savior that we don't see anywhere else in Scripture. But in Isaiah 42, Martin Luther, when he was working on this passage, passage, writing about this passage, he says, Isaiah 42 paints the entire Christ. So in this passage, we get to behold Jesus, to behold the servant of the Lord. And we will concentrate our time uh, today on the first four verses, and I want to point out two things. I want us to behold two things, to behold the servant's mission And to behold the servant's heart. So first let's look verses 1 and 2 to behold the servant's mission. What is it that Jesus, the servant, came to do? You've all heard in businesses and organizations you need a mission statement. This is a short statement that's going to tell the world what, what you're trying to do, what you're aiming to do. In popular business literature it's common advice that if you're if you want to be a growing business You need to create a a mission statement that is so bold, so audacious, so big, that you'll never be able to accomplish it. You're supposed to dream big, to create a statement that in your wildest dreams, you can't fully accomplish. And this mission statement fits the bill. In verse 2, we have a summary of the servant's mission to bring forth justice to the nations. The servant will establish justice in the whole earth. Not just for a certain group of people, not just for a nation, but for the entire earth. And Isaiah wants to make sure that we know it. In the first four verses, three times he mentions to us that the servant will establish justice in the earth. When we think of justice, we get a picture of a courtroom. You've got the judge putting all the bad guys in their place, locking them away, making them pay for what they have done. Justice is served when the punishment fits the crime. A promise to us of worldwide justice, it resonates with us because we know that there is an imbalance of justice in the world. That the wicked prosper. That the righteous are the ones who suffer. That the bad guys get away with it, and the good guys are the ones who always lose. 
And so when we hear the word justice, we think there's a new sheriff in town, and he's going to come clean the place up. And that's a part of what is meant by this word. The servant of the Lord will do something about the injustice in the world around us. He will put right everything that's wrong. All evil and all sin will be punished. But that's not all that the word entails. Uh, it, the word for justice in the original language is the word mishpah. Mishpah means to put everything right. It means to establish a world in which everything is in right relationship to each other. Mishpah in all the world means that everything in all of creation will be in right relationship to each other and in right relationship to God. To bring forth justice is to bring forth the world that you and I long for. When, that, when justice is established by the servant, things will work the way that they should. It will be like life was in the Garden of Eden and like life will be in the world to come. That's the mission. Justice for the world. This mission is big. It's audacious. It's so big, it's going to require someone with incredible power to pull it off. It is a job for a king, a king who has sovereign power to make the world right. And Isaiah tells us in this passage that this servant will have the power to accomplish the mission. But the next verse, we see a seeming contradiction in how this servant will accomplish the mission. In verse 1, we have this picture of a sovereign, powerful king. But that's the exact opposite of what we have in verse 2. He has the mission of a king, but his methods will be anything but that. One of the interesting things that you see when you look at this passage is how does Isaiah describe the servant? What are the words he uses to describe? The servant is primarily described in the negative. Here's what the servant won't be like. Look at verses 1 to 4. Look at all the things that the servant isn't or won't be. He doesn't cry aloud. He doesn't lift up his voice. He doesn't make it heard in the street. He is not a breaker of reeds. He is not a quencher of wicks. He is not faint discouraged. When Isaiah is trying to describe the goodness and the glory and the beauty of this servant, he can only say, here's what he's not. He can only tell us that this servant is unlike any servant that you and I could ever imagine. He's not like the other kings. He's not like the other gods around us. He is a God like no other. He is more beautiful, powerful, and lovely than we would ever expect. Jesus is not like you think he is. He is not like the kings and the rulers that we see around us. He is not like the little gods of our world. He's not like the God that you construct in your mind. He is not the God that you would be if you were king of the universe. He's better. And Isaiah tells us how about this servant by using three phrases to describe the work of the servant in verse 2. He says, the servant will not cry aloud. He will not lift up his voice and he will not make his voice heard in the street. I want to look at those phrases just for a moment uh, to, to show us what Isaiah is trying to tell us about the servant. The first is to cry aloud. The word here is, is a word that's used to talk about a raging bull or thunderbolt, or something that startles you or scares you. What we see here is that this servant 
is no sergeant. He is not a a drill sergeant dressing down his subjects. He doesn't shout and scream to accomplish his will. He is not a raging bull that is a threat to fly off the handle at any moment. That's not what we see in the world around us. And in fact, that's not how we live either, is it? When you and I feel powerless, when we want to gain control, feel that sense of power, we cry aloud. We yell and we scream. We startle and scare those around us. That's how we gain back control. Think about it in parenting. When life seems out of control, when it's chaotic and I feel powerless, I will yell at my kids. Because whatever parenting tactic I was using in the moment wasn't working. And I'm frustrated. I feel powerless. And so I'm going to cry aloud as a means of gaining control to show that I am the one in charge. But Jesus is not like that. He doesn't yell and scream in order to gain control. He's completely and perfectly in control at all times, and he doesn't need to cry aloud to show us he's in charge or to leverage his power to get us in line. And the second phrase that Isaiah uses is that he will not lift up his voice. The word here is, picture a bully, a dictator, someone who is domineering, someone who is an authoritarian, who's trying to drown out the voices of those around him. This servant is no dictator, preying upon the weakness and the vulnerability of his enemies and those who are in his service. The third phrase is he will not make his voice heard in the street. This suggests that the servant here is not all about self-promotion. The servant doesn't need large crowds to prop up his ego. Just think about what we read and was referenced in Matthew 12. Jesus is telling the crowds, hey guys, be quiet. I don't want anyone to tell about what I have been doing. Jesus is not concerned with approval ratings. The servant is not worried about making a name for himself or building a legacy or having his ego propped up. Do you see how different this servant is than what we might expect? Isaiah is telling us that the mission The mission that this servant has is greater than any king in all of history has ever been able to accomplish. But he will accomplish this mission in the most unking-like way that we could ever imagine. You see that even more clearly as we look to our second point. Not just behold the servant's mission, but let's behold the servant's heart as well in verses 3 and 4. Jesus' heart towards you is not what you would expect. Think about every other king or ruler that has ever been on the earth. If you want to have access to the king, if you want to have influence on the king or the ruler, you have to be able to offer something to them. Kings only want strong and successful people. They only want strong and successful people who can do something for them who can advance his agenda. You don't get access to the king unless you have a gift or votes or influence or something that you can offer to advance his agenda. And when you are in their presence, you better have your act together. 
You better say the right things. You better be dressed the right way, behaving the right way. There is importance to your visit. A few years ago, I was invited uh, to greet the president as he uh, got off of Air Force One. So to go to the airport and have a small window in which uh, we were able to uh, greet the president. But there was an extraordinary amount of work that went into gaining access to meet him. The first and most obvious thing that had to happen was I had to have someone who could get me access, who would invite me to be a part. I don't have that access in and of myself. I have a friend who has connections and who has power, and so he invited me uh, to meet the president. Before I showed up to the airport that day, I had to have a background check. I had a phone interview with the Secret Service. That was a bit nerve-wracking. I was told that I needed to dress properly, that I could either wear a suit or I could stay home, and those were my two options. (laughs) There were four different checkpoints along the way. We were scanned and searched at each one. When we got to the rails to meet the president, we were told that we were not to reach our hand over the rail under any circumstance. We were not to initiate shaking hands unless he indicated that he would like to shake hands with us. And while he was around us, we were not to put our hands in our pockets. We were not to make any sudden moves unless we wanted to become very well acquainted with one of the Secret Service members. All of this was to greet the president for five minutes at the airport. And here's the best part. We didn't even get to meet him. He went the other way when he got off the airplane. But in this passage, we're not talking about a president who comes and goes, who's gone with the next election cycle. We're talking about the eternal king of the whole earth. Certainly, if you want to know him, to be in his presence, you're going to have to bring something, something that you could offer to him. Certainly, you're going to have to pass through checkpoints of righteousness. Certainly, there's going to be a background check on all your past sins. Certainly, you're going to have to have an inside connection. Someone with inside knowledge to be able to get access for you. Our most natural belief is to think that God will only accept us at our best. And that He will have no use for us if we are not. We believe that we are only as welcome as we are useful. That is not the heart of Jesus in this passage. He is not a king who needs our strength, but he's one who welcomes us in our weakness. Verse 3 has some of the sweetest words to us in all of the scriptures, that a bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. Some translations have it as a, as a, a smoldering wick. He will not put out. Reeds grew in the wetlands, grew on the banks of the rivers. They were used for a variety of tasks, but once one was bruised, it no longer had any value. Its useful life was over. The word that's used for bruised can also mean crushed. It's a a deep bruise. It's a deep internal injury that likely will result in death. And so when we look at something that is crushed or something that is bruised, it's natural for us to think, let's cut it off. Throw it away 
and move on to something that actually has uh, some value. What about a faintly burning wick? The picture here is of a candle that is about to go out. It's just barely hanging on. It's the very end of its life. It's producing more smoke than light at this point. It might have had purpose at one point in life, but right now it's just a nuisance. And so let's get rid of it. Let's put it out and move on. Every other king in the world would break the reed and snuff out the wick, but not this servant. He is a king who welcomes those who have nothing to offer him. He's a king who loves the fragile, who loves the weak, who love those who, have, who are seemingly worthless in the eyes of the world. Does anyone else feel like they're limping into 2021 as a bruised reed or a faintly burning wick? As you think about life, you, you're worn out. You are emotionally and spiritually spent. Your days are filled with anxiety, you're filled with fear and anger. You're numb, you're withdrawn, you feel like you're just barely hanging on. You feel like I have nothing to give and I have nothing to offer anyone around me. Your faith feels weak, it feels non-existent. Some days you feel cold and indifferent towards God. Your heart for God would only be generously described as a faintly burning wick. If that's you, if that describes where you are today, I want you to know there's good news for you. That Jesus doesn't break bruised reeds. He doesn't put out smoldering wicks. Jesus is kinder and more loving than you could ever imagine. As we sang earlier, he welcomes the weakest and the vilest and the poor. He doesn't welcome bruised reeds while rolling his eyes with an air of regret or disappointment. Jesus loves lost causes. He welcomes those who have nothing, who haven't gotten it right, and those who have tried to find salvation in any other thing. He welcomes those who have, who have sought salvation and security in everything else in the world, and Jesus is their last option. They've tried to find it anywhere else, and so maybe they say, well, maybe I'll try Jesus now. C.S. Lewis says this about God's willingness to receive such people. He said, if God were proud... He would hardly have us on such terms. But he is not proud. He stoops to conquer. He will have us even though we have shown that we prefer everything else to him and come to him because there's nothing, now, nothing better now to be had. And so however bruised and broken you are, however dim and weak and faint you feel, no matter how many other places and things you have turned to for salvation and for hope and security in life, Jesus welcomes you. And even better, he doesn't just welcome you. Jesus knows how to care for you. He knows what you need. 
To revive a smoldering wick takes skill and patience. Have you ever had a fire that was about to go out? You're trying to, you're trying to keep it alive. If, if you blow on it too hard, you're going to put it out. If you put too much wood on the fire, you're going to, it's going to go out. But if you don't do enough, it's going to go out as well. It requires skill and patience. To restore, to restore a bruised reed takes persistence and patience. As a Christian and as a pastor, one of the callings that I have in life is to be with people who are bruised reeds and smoldering wicks, to be with people who are in hard places in life. And while this is a great privilege, it's one of the great privileges of being a pastor, is to be with people who are hurting. Uh, but it is also an incredibly frightening thing. It's a, it's a uh, frightening thing because what do I say? What, what do I do in a situation like this? I'm in the room and this person's spouse has just died. What on earth am I supposed to say? This person was just diagnosed with cancer. And the life that they had planned is done. What do you say? This woman just had a miscarriage. And life, as they know it, is turned upside down. This person's spouse just came in and said they're leaving and they want a divorce. What do you say? This person has just relapsed into their addiction. And they're ruining every relationship that they have in life. You ever been in that situation? It can seem like everything that you're trying to say comes out wrong. You're in your head, you're thinking, am I saying the right thing? Am I being misinterpreted? Am I insensitive? Is this the wrong thing to say at the wrong time? And while God does call us to do this, and while God uses the body of Christ in situations like this, even with our best of intentions, with our best heart, uh, purest possible motives, your church and your pastors and your elders and your friends, we will break bruised reeds. We will snuff out smoldering wicks. Not because we want to, but because we are not perfect and we are not the Savior. But not with Jesus. He knows what you need. He knows how to care for you. How do we know that? In verse 4, Isaiah uses the same verbs that he uses in verse 3. He uses it to describe the servant, that the servant will not grow faint. The servant will not be bruised or discouraged is the same word used. What Isaiah is trying to say is that the servant will be subject to the same pressures and suffering that have brought us low. He will know what it is like to be hurt and to suffer. He will know our sorrow and our pain, but it will not deter him or stop him from accomplishing his mission. Jesus knows what it's like to be a bruised reed and a smoldering wick. He is no stranger to pain and anguish, and he knows how to deal gently with those who come to him who are bruised and smoldering. And how do we know this? It is because he was the bruised reed who was broken. He was the smoldering wick 
that was snuffed out. He is the king who will establish justice in all of the earth. And he'll do that by being the servant who took upon himself all suffering and all injustice and all pain at the cross. He was broken. He was snuffed out so that in him you and I might never be. And indeed, we see a picture of that as we come to the table this morning. We come to a table that is hosted by a king. But we come to a table that you can have access to. We come to a table that has a seat for every single bruised reed that desires to come in faith. And as we come, we come not to feed ourselves. We don't come with our hands full, but we come as those who are hungry and needy. At this table, we are fed by our Lord. We do not feed ourselves. And so, in a future that seems uncertain, be assured that our servant Jesus will return, that he will accomplish his mission. And he will establish justice in all of the earth. And until that day, he gladly and joyfully receives bruised reeds. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not quench. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your word to us. We thank you that you deal gently with those who are hurting and those who are in need. And so by your spirit, would you give us what we need? We're thankful for your word. We're thankful that we can come to your table and be fed by you. And so give us joy as we do. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.